You're listening to the BJJ Globetrotters Pirate Radio Podcast, brought to you from St. Bart in the French West Indies. We talk jiu-jitsu, traveling, and people who do things a bit different in life. I am your host, Christian Graugard. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 7 of the BJJ Globetrotters Pirate Radio Podcast. This episode is sponsored by My Mom's Garage. My Mom's Garage was the first warehouse of BJJ Globetrotters. Uh, I put like 3,000 books there and uh, it took me a few years to get them out, even though I convinced her they would only be there for a few months. So that was probably not exactly what she had in mind when she said yes to that. Uh, eventually, we moved to a bigger warehouse and um, My Mom's Garage is now empty again. I hate a podcast advertisement by the way uh, I know I promised there would be another episode in a few weeks but um, it took a little bit longer than that uh, sometimes just like in jiu-jitsu life just hits you and uh, there are other things that take your time and um, the podcast project is is on the the nice to have list for me uh, it's definitely not on the on the necessary for survival kind of list so uh, Unfortunately, I had to postpone it a little bit, but um, I am back in the basement and um, excited to uh, get a few few episodes out the out the door that I have ready. What's happened recently? Um, the next five camps are now sold out, so that means uh, the Castle Camp in Italy, the U.S. Camp in U.S., and the Summer Camp in Belgium just sold out. The Greenland Camp and the Iceland Camp. So it's going to be uh, an incredibly busy uh, busy summer for us, but. I'm very excited about that. So the next, the only camps left with tickets are, at this point, the uh, the fall camp in Germany and then the Sen camp in uh, in Poland for for the summer. There's there's, there's going to be a lot of people to roll with for sure. Uh, I had some time off the mats uh, the last weeks and um, can definitely feel that I need to get get back in shape for the camps. Somehow the camps is, are are what keeps me in shape. It used to be competition that that pushed me to eat properly and 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 work on my cardio and and my um like the weak parts of my body so i didn't get get injured um that's i can't really compete at the moment uh due to living on a rock in the atlantic uh so uh, camps kind of took all that for me it's it's what keeps me uh keeps me sharp because i don't want to show up at a camp in 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 bad shape and not being able to roll with as many people as possible i think i i owe that to uh, to the participants and i like to do it so uh, a lot of things happened. We we managed to launch the Globetrotters in Action service, which is uh, if you listen to the to the last podcast, you would know. But it's the it's the kind of the Globetrotters video library where we have collected at this point more than a hundred videos from from our our past camps, and um, we will uh, be sending a professional video guide to to pretty much all the camps in the future to film the classes and put them online for free. So if you can't make it to the camps for whatever reason, or I don't know, you can't afford it or something like that, you can still kind of um, follow the classes and, and all that. 100% free, we do it for karma. Um, at this this point, before the, the all the camps start this year, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time in, I'm kind of in a design phase, uh, spending a lot of time on doing banners and... Uh, designing geese and uh, rash guards and t-shirts and I, I'm sitting here looking at my whiteboard on on the 
on the wall of my basement and uh, I, I have done almost half of the finished up almost half of the Guy Rashgard t-shirt banner designs for the camp so still a, still a while to go but um, it's it's a process that I enjoy so uh, I always like to, to try and come up with new new designs that are are a little bit fun or a little bit different also working hard on um, on something new for the camps is uh, try to more organize do kind of off the mat classes or like theoretic theoretical workshops for the camps um, this is something I wanted to do for for a long time but uh, I just had my hands full with with the amount of work we had at the camps um, at this point uh, recently since New Year I had a full-time assistant Vara who's been working for me for for many years in my old academy and uh, she's really taking a lot of, of work off my shoulders so I can focus on fun things for myself or like projects I've been wanting to do but I didn't have time for like this podcast uh, but um, one of the things are um, are the theoretical workshops at the camp so so I've been gathering uh, ideas for what kind of workshops people want to do what kind of workshops the instructors can do uh, what I could do myself I'm not sure about that yet and then we will vote for it for at in each uh, camp participant group to see uh, what workshops people want to want to do um, and then I'll try and put it on the schedule uh, rent um, rent conference rooms for it and then uh, then see how we can fit it in I think it's going to be interesting to have just more of that because uh, first of all it's good valuable information and it's also uh, you don't have to be on the mats all the time the camps could be really hard on your body and you you want to do more stuff or learn more stuff and um, this is an opportunity to do that without necessarily being on the mats and uh, doing something physical so it'll be like injury prevention strength and conditioning mental preparation rules workshops first aid uh, i might do something on i don't know entrepreneurship traveling uh, stuff that i like to talk a lot about um so we're gonna have I, I hope we can have like a full schedule of workshops parallel to the to the regular classes at the camp. So that's something I'm really excited about. Uh, so more about that if you follow um, our Facebook group, members of BGJ Globetrotters, or uh, sign up for our newsletter or look at our website or something like that. Um, so next thing is that I will be off to the, the first castle camp in Italy uh, in two weeks. I'm pretty excited about it because this is a project that took me, I think I started thinking about this like two years ago. Uh, it's been a lot of work to uh, to try and find the right castle and uh, and rent it and figure out all the stuff. I think there there is a definitely a podcast episode where I talk about this. You can try and, and look it up. I don't remember right now which, which episode it is, but um, uh, there's also a blog post if you go to bjglobetrotters.com slash blogs and look up my profile you will find a, a post about the process of finding and renting a, a castle so this is something I'm, I'm incredibly excited about for some reason uh, some of the participants planned this to be kind of like an 80s Miami Vice castle theme so uh, I've been power shopping a little bit on Amazon Italy for um, white suits and interesting sunglasses and uh, inflatable flamingos so we'll see how that goes. I'll be sure to post some pictures from, from that camp. Anyway, after the interview of the episode, um, Ruin McFadden is a guy I've been running into at a handful of camps, and uh, I always wanted to sit down and talk with him, more, talk more about what he's doing, because I follow his Facebook page and everything he posts, and uh, I'm really fascinated at, at uh, 
I mean, I, I feel like I'm fairly good at traveling off the beaten path, but this guy is on a completely different level. It seems like you put so much time and effort into researching places to go that you would never, ever think about. So I think it's, it's really interesting to, uh, to hear what, uh, how he's doing that and, and talk a little about, bit about the places he's been, he's been going. And um, uh, this was the first time I actually had, to sit, had an opportunity to sit down and talk with him about what he's doing. Um, and it was a very interesting time, kind of flew by, and it was a, an hour and a half interview, but I've cut it down a little bit. So uh, I hope you'll in- enjoy it, and uh, I'll be back with you uh, after the interview is over, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the questions I got on the Facebook group. Where do you see BGJ Globetrotters in 10 years? And, w- and will there ever be long- camps longer than a week? Uh, so we'll talk about that after the interview. Um, but for now, enjoy uh, the interview with Ruin. He uh, is Irish and he lives in Heidelberg, uh, where we also do the, the fall camp uh, this year and we did it last year. So enjoy. So live from the Arctic Circle, am I right? Yeah, yeah, well, well within the Arctic Circle. Well within the Arctic Circle. We, uh, we have Ruin McFadden. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself really quick before I just start reading up for my long list of stuff yeah. I've, I've noted about you? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Um, first of all, uh, props on getting my name right. You're one of the very few people who I think uh, got my name right before you even met me. And like that is very, very odd. Even... Uh, the majority of Irish people that I met fucked my name up for you know a few weeks before they managed to nail it. So uh, yeah, my name is Ruin. Um, as I just mentioned, I am Irish. Uh, been living in Germany for the past six, going on seven years though. Been training BJJ specifically for oh god, I think my first ever class was in something like 2004. I did. Uh, I was doing boxing at the time and uh, you know, first ever exposure to moderately fast internet. I landed on SureDog and watched a few Mirko Krokop highlight videos. Nice. Discovered MMA and uh, tried BJJ and I absolutely hated it. Like first few <laughs> classes, I was like, this is the weirdest, like, ah, I just think, no, fuck this. I did, I think, maximum three classes. And then I went straight back to boxing. Right. So my first ever BJJ exposure was 2004. And then when I actually got hooked on it, when I decided to go back for round two, that was 2010, I think. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I've been training since 2010. Um, purple belt. Um, and, I mean, you know how it goes. Like, when I think back now, it's just like, oh, man, if I just kept going from 2004, <laughs> would have had that black belt by now. But, you know, it's the same as, like, you see these guys who are like, ah, oh, fuck, you know, I started BJJ when I was... 55, or you know, that, that guy who showed up at your club there, was it last week? He's in it his was, 70s or something. I, I gave, <laughs> yeah, it was his 70th birthday. 70th birthday, yeah. Right. And I mean, you have people who are saying they're 50s and they're like, oh man, you know, if only I started BJJ when I was 40 or 30, right. you know, where could I have been now? But, you know, fuck it, you start when you start and you do what you can. So, uh, yeah, I've been, tra- been training BJJ now since uh, 2010, Purple Belt, living in Germany. Um, and yeah, basically just try and try and travel as much as I can. You know, I do have a proper like nine to five job, so I'm not like full on digital nomad or anything like that. Um, but Germany being Germany, they give you a shitload of vacation days and I do my best to use them as, uh, as best I can. Hence why I am now well, well within the Arctic Circle, um, trying not to freeze my face off. 
And I think as we talked about, I mean, we could have done this interview any day, really. I mean, it's yeah, not really yeah. a rush. I'm, I'm not going to publish this until probably maybe three or four weeks from now on or something because I have mm -hmm. another one coming up. But uh, like, so we, we thought we had to do it as the first like live Caribbean Arctic Circle podcast. Yeah, exactly, show. exactly. Like, there's no way around yeah. it. Even though I, we, I have a camp here starting tomorrow. There are, I, have, I sit here with a list of 25 people arriving today by ferry and boat. And I have to go pick mm -hmm. them all up. And they're probably all late because it's snowstorm in Paris. And uh, it's the Caribbean. So everybody's always late here. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's kind of a mess. Uh, but I, uh, somehow we managed to pull it off still. Just because this was mm -hmm. the only day we could actually do it. Right, do the interview. Yeah, it's just uh, all awkward timing. And uh, like I, I, was, I was keeping track of the Facebook group for the camp. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like all this weird shit that's been happening like a fucking dumpster fire on St. Martin. And it seems like everyone who's flying out of Paris, their flights are getting canceled. So right. I was thinking, you know, geez, you, you probably got a hectic schedule on your hands today. Um, I'm up here to do a, a training course, which is only on for three, four days. So, you know, it's, uh, I'd be, you know, halfway busy, let's say the next few days. But uh, yeah, fuck it, we made it happen. Um, right. Fingers crossed. You know, as I said, the internet up here, I thought was pretty decent. Um, I don't know how the audio quality is going to hold up, but listen, yeah, for the sake of making the first ever Arctic Caribbean podcast in history, it had to be done. Even you need to turn off your vibrator on your phone. I'm oh, sorry. Does that actually come through? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so wait, what's the story? Will I hang up and try and shut that off or, cause I don't know if I can actually do it while keeping the call going. Uh, just, just, uh, just lock off uh, Tinder or whatever you're under. Arctic Tinder. <laughs> yeah, for I've all these polar bears just hitting me up. Um, um, we'll, we'll see. How yeah, I don't we'll see. I specifically. Yeah, I mean, even in terms of technology, this is pretty amazing that we can make this work because I messaged you like a few hours ago with a screenshot of my internet speed test, and it was like point mm -hmm. two megabit download or something. It's ridiculous. You never kind of know, but yeah. I think now it's it's one o'clock here in the afternoon and i think most french people on the island they sleep so uh this is where i kind of connection i have eight megabit this is unheard of <laughs> so yeah, you, yeah you gotta hit the nap time the island nap time well, let, well just uh, we got onto a bit of head start there let's get back to your your current location uh i was just writing down a few things here from um preparing this interview and um as far as i remember the first i met you the first time in greenland right First time, yeah, I suppose. I thought, I suppose, technically, first time I met you was at um, the Leuven camp in 2015. But I mean, you know, Leuven camp is like what 300 people there. So there were 250 people. That's why I didn't. Tech, I tech, only technically met you there. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I think I think I shook your hand there or something like that. But you know, it's just like one face and 300. Um, first time properly was Greenland, definitely. That was May. When was that? May 2016 or so. It was so me, that, yeah. you, and like. 10 other just like crazy random people. So just for the listeners, up. for the listeners, what we did there was, um, I used to run a gym in Copenhagen for 15 years and, uh, a guy from Greenland studied in Denmark and he trained there and, uh, Jason. And, uh, when he, uh, sorry, he was studying there. And when he finished his studies as a dentist, he moved back home to Greenland and he, he tried to start a little, uh, jujitsu club there. And, uh, he's been there for some years now and they still only have like four, five, six people training there. Uh, so I talked to him about, about coming to visit and uh, the, the tickets there are insane. And it's like, okay, fuck it. Eventually after like two years, I managed to to figure out how to get there. And then I thought, well, we might as well invite some friends along. 
since they have no one to train with. So that's where we did the the free Greenland camp to to support Jason's little club there. And um, I think we were twelve people there for 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 a week or something, right? Like half a week or something. Yeah, yeah. It was something like, something like twelve people and about ten different nationalities. So myself, yourself, a few Icelanders, like Nelson and Hillary, and mm-hmm. yeah, like just solid solid little group of people. It was very interesting. Trip, uh, like- yeah, that was that was super interesting trip. That that really turned out well. And uh, so we're just for the for the view for the listeners, not the viewers. Um, we're, we're doing it again this summer in Greenland. It's insanely difficult and expensive to get there, but um, we do it like just the weekend leading up to the Iceland camp. So if anyone is going to the Iceland camp, they can pop over to Greenland and sleep in a tent or something. Yeah, that uh, the original trip, like back in two thousand and sixteen, that was the very definition of an impulse buy. Um, I think you just posted a Facebook status basically saying, like, hey, listen, anyone want to go to Greenland in two weeks? And I was like, yes, yes, I would. And then I checked flight prices. I'm like, oh, you're fucking kidding me. Because, I mean, realistically, you're talking eight, 900 euro. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this is, there's no such thing as bargain flights to Greenland. It doesn't happen. So I, I, I remember I was, uh, I was just about to leave for a weekend in Lithuania. And I was thinking, like, man, fuck, you know, it's so expensive and it's on short notice. But, you know, first of all, Greenland is the kind of place that I've always wanted to go mm-hmm. anyway. And second of all, I thought, man, when are you ever going to get an opportunity to go there yeah. under such unique circumstances, you know, to go and train in the sport that you love and help like a, a little local club full of like just really good guys, you know, yeah. really dedicated, you know, everyone there has their heart in the right place. And I just said, okay, fuck it. No, I've got to do it. So, you know, cost of flights aside, just not booked, done. And then two weeks later, landed in Greenland. So, yeah, amazing. Just like such a unique location, unique culture. Uh, you know, when, when I was walking around the streets there, I realized very quickly, it's like, oh, shit, like I don't know anything about Greenland. Yeah. You know, I was amazed at just how, no, I mean, fuck it. It's, it's a part of Denmark, I think. Yeah. It's up in the Arctic, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But just, uh, you know, how prevalent, you know, the Inuit like language and culture still is just blew me away. So mm. like such a location, beautiful landscape. I'd really recommend it. You know, if anyone is kind of on the fence, just like just go for it. It is really like once in a lifetime opportunity. I think for me, at least it was what, what struck me the most was one, it was so quiet. It was insane. Like the, the quietness was always, it was always so loud. It was like popping my ears for just being so quiet. I mean, no, no yeah. kind of trees or not like a lot of birds or anything. It was just so insanely quiet and so remote that uh, yeah. just like there were no, no, no roads. You couldn't get out of town, you know. And, and yeah, yeah. And, and I know there was the one I, junction in Nook. I think the one set of traffic lights that we somehow kept ending up like at a red light. You know, it was like the one junction. Actually, I think the one traffic lights in the country, and we somehow always ended up at a red light. We did while yeah, going through town. Yeah. And fun fact, and I live, I now live on an island with even fewer traffic lights. There's zero here, ah. so, so there you go. Uh, I think one thing that that I really liked about it was a oh, light, a light. I found really fascinating was that it was you know the how nature was is really in charge there. You know, like what Jason Jason told us about they mm-hmm. have like like guards around town to look for polar bears in case they enter town. Polar bear, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. <laughs> I think is in, yeah. in, in the town. That's the only place in greenland i guess or something don't don't quote me on that where where you can't exit your house without a rifle 
I think anywhere else you need a rifle, if you need, want to go to like the store or anything, just yeah. in case there's a bear like tapping your shoulder somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's exactly like that up here where I am now. There's two there's two towns. I mean, towns inverted commas, you know, they're settlements really. Um, and as soon as you set foot outside of those settlements, you need uh, a rifle and a flare gun. Uh, you know, ideally like tripwires if you're camping. I mean, you basically need to. <laughs> pack you know a military rucksack full of ordnance if you want to go camping because there's three thousand bears on the archipelago so uh, yeah that's that's one of the things that i am learning about when i'm up here like this training course that i'm going to do for the next few days one of the modules is polar bear safety and uh, i'm pretty sure they're actually going to give me a rifle i was like this could go badly wrong you know i was like you've seen how i operate my phone so uh they, they sent an email saying hey listen okay how much experience does everyone have with rifles like we're going to try and have a beginners group and an intermediate group and an expert group. And I said, okay, what's before the beginners group? You know, what's the <laughs> don't shoot yourself on the foot group? And uh, I'll be I'll be fairly at home there. So uh, yeah, listen, talk to me again in four days, and I will have all the I will have the lowdown on uh, all the best like polar bear takedown defense and uh, everything you need to know for Greenland. When are you going back for this next camp? It's June this time, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I, I don't even remember. We do so many camps. It's, it's July, I think, just a few days before the Iceland camp. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be proper midnight sun then that time of year. Yeah, it is, yeah. Anyway, I... Cool. Yeah, I remember... Well, I do remember now that you signed up for Greenland and I was kind of, okay, I just briefly talked to you in Belgium. I remember that now. Um, yeah. And the yeah. first thing I remember about it was that you said, don't, don't bother picking me up in the airport. I'll just walk and find my way and I'll spend one night in another random town to eat, was it an mm. ox sandwich and climb a, a mountain? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was, because you know when you're flying, uh, I think if you fly from Iceland, you can go directly to Nook. Right. But if you're flying from Copenhagen, you have to go via Kangaroosuak, which yes. is, um, again, just for, for anyone who's not familiar with Greenlandic geography. So the capital is Nook, which is in the southwest and there's i mean i don't know what the population is there it's like fifteen thousand. it's pretty small for a capital but about maybe a hundred or so kilometers north of that there's this tiny town like village really called kangaluswak um what about 400 people but despite the fact that it's so small it's the only really international length runway in the country because it used to be a former u.s air force base so i had to fly in via kangaluswak and first day, I just had like a three-hour layover or whatever, and then hopped on my other plane down to Nook, where I met you guys. Um, and then on the way back, I spent uh, a night in Kangaluswak. And that, yeah, that was amazing. Like, that was that was one of the highlights of the trip for me because I was there entirely by myself. There was the one hostel in the town, which was, uh, or was, still is probably, a converted U.S. military base, and I had it all to myself. So, you know, this old cold like really fucking weird just place to sleep you know just me there huge place empty corridors empty rooms um and i got to go for a, a hike up into the hills around the town and that was an amazing feeling because you know like talking about the quiet and talking about that sense that nature is in charge you know you walk up the hill and you can still you've got civilization behind you so you can still hear the sounds of the airport for instance and you can hear the occasional car horn um it's going in the background but you you cross the lip of that hill and then all of a sudden it's like that noise just 
disappears. I mean, you could be in the middle of the continent 5,000 years ago. You just have the tundra and the ice just stretching out ahead of you as far as the eye can see. And it's really, really humbling. Like when you realize that, you know, just how far that stretches and how few people have been out there. So that was a huge, huge highlight of the trip for me. Um, and again, can recommend it to anyone, like just anyone who's thinking about going, if you happen to have a night in Kangerlussak, like there's great uh, hiking opportunities there. And I say, listen, take it, take it, because it's just another part of that Greenland experience. And it's one that you will get very few places in the world. Right. Well, I, okay, I, I kind of, I assume this would happen because usually when I talk to you, we we immediately dive into like crazy stories about places <laughs> yeah. gone or something. I I did write like two two full pages of like notes for this interview, and so far I've only crossed off introduce yourself in Greenland. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't so I didn't I'm I didn't even get to introduce I didn't even get to introduce you yet, but I guess I, I've, at this point I've probably done that before the interview. I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, just a quick, um, I would say one thing that, well, of course, we met through jujitsu, um, and mm-hmm. pretty quickly, I kind of got the feeling that you were, in terms of traveling, you were doing something that I don't know anyone else doing, really. I mean, I, I always try to kind of travel off the beaten path. And, you know, when I did my round the world trip, I, I tried as much as possible not to, like, to avoid like ma- mainstream destinations and, uh, and, and try to find places I knew nothing about and kind of research a little bit or just randomly pop into a place. And I think it's something I've wanted to be good at, but I think you, you're like, if, if I'm like, I'm, I'm maybe like a brown belt at, at, at traveling to weird places and setting weird things up. I think you're like the, the coral belt of, of this skill. <laughs> it's like, whenever yeah. I look at like what the fuck you're doing, I'm like, what the hell? I wouldn't, I mean, I thought I've been off the beaten path, but, but you, you know, you really, <laughs> you really put some effort into this i see and uh it, it's kind of fascinating like you, you're kind of i i know people are gonna you know roll their eyes right now but but you kind of live the dream the life i dream of a little bit you know i know i live in the caribbean mm-hmm. and like i just do fun stuff but still uh in terms of traveling and kind of you know seeing the world and and diving into you know unknown corners of the world and kind of literature and, and history I think you're doing you're doing all the stuff I really want to do, but I, I at this point this this life I designed for myself right now I just simply do not have time for that. Um, also, yeah. for the for the listeners, Ruin has like out of I re, I think I reached the, the Facebook friends limit. I sometimes have to unfriend some people. Sorry uh, mm-hmm. to to add some new ones, but out of my five thousand friends, I, and I never really look at my newsfeed, but I I added you as a, a kind of always show on top. And the newsfeed, so, uh, so anything you post is there, and it's like the, the, the most cool, cool. the most yeah. favorite stuff on my Facebook. I, mean, I guess. Oh man, you're gonna, you're gonna regret that someday, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, um, yeah. there's some interesting stuff, and and I think, um, I think, and also, um, I mean, I've been, I, I sit here with a list of of the places you've been. Um, I just checked my own list. I've I've been to 198 kind of destinations in 54 countries so i think in terms of numbers i beat you a little bit what did you yep. what, what did you write there 44 countries i beat you a little bit by 10. 44 yeah no you, you beat me out on the country front definitely and <laughs> on numbers but i, I think that just the places you've been are just ridiculous um and the the stories i i see you write about where you've been going are just absolutely insane i mean it's it's 
it's not even it's, it's like it's so far ahead of the game in terms of traveling off the beaten path that i think there's definitely something that people can kind of learn or be inspired by by, by seeing what you do and, and listening to this or whatever you end up doing with with all this experience you have but how much time do you actually put into let's let's get back to your list and the stories of the place you've been later because mm -hmm. I, i i have a sense that this could be a long a long talk but let's see um how much how much time do you actually put into like researching where you're going and and like uh i mean you must you must be reading and researching all the time um yeah um but kind of unintentionally so in many regards so i mean i'm i'm always keeping an eye out for interesting places there's no doubt about that but in terms of that initial spark like that flash of inspiration that kind of all of a sudden um draws my attention to a place like i got a lot of my ideas from books um and i mean i read a lot of history books and i read a lot of old travel literature and i'm a big geography geek so You know, if I'm popping up in your Facebook newsfeed, you probably see me like just posting maps, maps, maps. I mean, well, you got you got me onto the map porn Reddit, and the like map my, porn site. Yeah. One of my favorite Reddits is the map porn. Yeah, yeah, it's like, fucking I can look amazing. At that forever, I actually have in front of me here in my little basement office. I, I found uh, in in a in a like kind of an old store here on the island. I found like old. Um, uh, what do you call it? Like navigational maps of of the Caribbean islands. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just yeah. never get bored of looking at, at them out. Yeah, I'm I'm exactly the same. Like old historical maps. I mean, modern maps, hiking maps. But I mean, historical maps, definitely. That would be my number one. So, uh, I mean, I, I basically, my my apartment, if you look at my apartment, I don't have wallpaper or anything like that. I have maps. It's like <laughs> I just live in a giant map, basically. All I, I, per, I particularly like maps of places that I've been Uh, and specifically maps that I've used, like hiking maps, because then it's not just this, you know, the superficial decoration in the background. It's actually something that got me somewhere um, and got me back safely in most cases. So, yeah, like uh, those kind of books that I read, you know, history, geography, travel literature. Most of the time, I'm just reading them purely out of interest because in my head, it just seems like a pretty cool topic. But all of a sudden, you know, it'll mention a place that I never thought of before. So classic example or classic, whatever the fuck is uh, a few years ago, I was reading a book called, uh, I think it was called the world without us by a guy called Alan Wiseman. And the concept of the book was basically, uh, the author looking at what the world would look like in say 10, 20, 50, hundred years, if all of a sudden all the people disappeared. So basically snap your fingers, every human being on earth disappears. What would New York look like in 50 years? What would uh, Paris look like in 50 years? So the way he did his research for that is he went off to these places uh, around the world that are already a little bit isolated or for whatever reason have been abandoned. So there's a city in Cyprus, for instance, that was abandoned during the war still off limits so he went there and he I've said okay there, this actually, is yeah. a pretty good sir i i said I've, i've actually been there or actually just outside of it and saw it i was surprised that that existed i had no idea it's like a ghost town yeah neither did i neither did i until i read about uh, until i read about it in the book um and uh, another place that he went was uh, this forest way way off in the east of poland like on the border with belarus 
Um, and what it is, it's the only remaining remnant of the original forest, basically the forest that once covered all of Europe back before people kind of moved in and said, it's like, okay, trees are kind of nice, but hey, we want to farm and, you know, we need to build houses. So boom, chop all the trees down. This is the one remaining section of that forest, you know, and it's small and getting smaller because the Polish government have recently decided that uh, they need the wood. So, you know, it's the kind of place that who knows if it'll be around for much longer, but I had never heard of it before I read this book. And all of a sudden, right there, there's that initial flash of inspiration. So I just went off and Googled it, like figured where it is in a modern sense, what country is it in, where do I need to fly to, where do I need to get a train to, do I need any visas, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe three, four months later, I'm walking around that forest in Poland, hiring a bike and cycling into Belarus to check out the Belarusian side. So that's just uh, an example of how I would get an idea just completely without um, intending it from some book that I'm reading. So in that sense, yeah, I'm always kind of reading, 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 researching, researching. And there's always just like little, again, flashes, just like little things coming up where I think, okay, that's cool. I'm going to put that on the list. That sounds interesting. Let me look into that. So one thing that's been on my mind that I haven't done yet, um, and I'm looking into maybe doing it later this year, is there was another book I was reading in two, three years back called In Search of Night, which is about basically how rare it is in our modern world to be able to see a really, truly clear night sky. So, you know, Europe, if you look at a light pollution map of Europe, Europe is fucked. Like, you know, your chances of being able to see actual stars in Europe are, you know, slim to none. Um, and that got me thinking. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I don't think I have ever seen a really, really clear night sky. Because I've been in some places that are really remote, but I don't know, for whatever reason, either it was cloudy or it was too cold. And I was like, no, fuck this. I'm staying in my tent. I thought, okay, this is something I have to do. I have to go somewhere and I have to see a really, really just like vibrant night sky. Um, and one place that I looked into where apparently you can do that quite easily is in Wadi Rum, which is the desert in Jordan. Um, and it's right beside Petra as well, which is, you know, UNESCO World Heritage Site, like ancient, ancient stone city. And all of a sudden I got thinking, hey, you know, that's yeah, potential for a long weekend there or uh, whenever the time, whenever the time, uh, whenever I have the time, mm-hmm. fly to Jordan, check out Petra, you know, head off into the desert for a few days. Apparently you can stay at um, nomad camps when you're out there. Just, you know, lie under the stars and um Okay, so yeah. wait, I, I got to pause you a little bit. How on okay? You get the idea. You want to fly to 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 Jordan and stay. I'll just stay mm-hmm. in the desert for a few days. Okay, how do you do that? Like, what's the what's the practical steps to to figure out how how you how you get into the desert, stay there? How do you find a tent? How do you bring food? <laughs> like, what's the what are the practical steps to actually do that? Practical steps. Um, yeah, I Google everything. So in terms of flights, like my go-to is Skyscanner. Um, Skyscanner just to find the you know the best deals. Wiki Travel is a good option for figuring out the best airport to go to. So Wiki Travel, just for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically like Wikipedia, but for travel, um, you know, it's got a lot less uh, editorial standards. So you know, it's kind of written by whoever wants. Um, you know, it's full of spell mistakes, but it's also full of really, really solid info. So if you find a particular town or city or region that you want to go to, 
it is very often a good way to point out the best airport. You know, it'll say, okay, no, don't go there. Like the transfers are, you know, you got fuck all transfers available. Try this airport instead. So just say by a combination of Googling or going to sources like that, I'll pick out my entry point. Skyscanner is an excellent way to find uh, cheap flights. So you can either choose specific dates. You can say, look, I'm going to fly out to Frankfurt. I want to fly to that airport. Give me whatever options you have in the month of October. And then you can see, you can compare right there in chart form. Okay, that date costs 200 quid. That day costs uh, 800. And you can start planning, you know, your start and your end point. In terms of what to do when you're on the ground, again, that is really location dependent. Let's, let's pick the specific, like how on earth did you, did you practically manage to get into the desert and stay there for a few days? I, I'm sure most, I'm sure most people would just kind of Google for a hotel in Jordan and, yeah, and like yeah, a yeah. taxi to the airport, right? Yeah. Well, again, this is something that I haven't done yet. So this is all theoretical. All right. Um, yeah, sorry. No, this is something for uh, maybe future, uh, maybe a few months, like at the end of summer. Because, um, you know, an Irishman in the Jordanian summer is probably not the best combination. So I'm thinking maybe September, October. So this um all theoretical. But again, wiki travel, all of a sudden, you know, you're scrolling through the wiki travel page for Petra and you see a link to uh, like a nomadic tour operator. And then you Google that guy and you get to his webpage or you get to say some TripAdvisor testimonial and you say, okay, this kind of sounds like what I would be into. You know, I can meet him at Petra, go to this nomad camp, spend two, three nights there. I can just wander off, you know, a few hundred meters, spend a few hours on my own, just go back. The tent will be there waiting for me, stuff like that. So it is very much location dependent um, where I'm going, what I want to do, because, I mean, resources just differ so differently. Um, the number of people who have visited a place depends um, or that, that kind of dictates the level of useful info that you'll get. So if you're going to a very, very off the beaten track location and you try Googling for info there, you know, you might get one blog post or something along those lines. Like you'll just hit a hashtag and you'll get like two Instagram photos and you'd be like, okay, I guess that's all the people who have been there, but you're going somewhere more popular then you have more to work with. So yeah, long story short, it really depends. Wiki travel, I find an excellent source of input kind of across the board. Skyscanner for flight and then depending on the destination I'm just going to have to go trolling and just be willing to spend a lot of time on Google um, subreddit pages like with the subreddit pages for individual countries are surprisingly good resources as well you know you, like I was in Belize two three months or so ago trying to find ferry information you know I wasn't getting a reply to emails wasn't getting a reply to um, Facebook messages so I just went to the Reddit page on Belize and I was like, hey, listen, I'm trying to get the boat from, you know, X to Y. Has anyone gotten it recently? Do you know if there's still even an operation? Two days later, I got a reply from a guy saying, yeah, took it yesterday. All good. Just show up. Cost this much. So, you know, just little little bits and pieces like that. But yeah, you got to be willing to put the, the Google footwork in. Yeah, you got to put some time into it. I think I've used Skyscanner quite a lot, but I think Google Google Flight is really catching up as well with uh, mm. in terms of planning uh, and flexibility. So what is, I, I'm, I look, I'm looking here at the list of places you, you've been to and stuff you've done. It's pretty long. We're not, we're not going to make this a 10-hour episode, but 
let's let's dive into them a little bit. What what would be the most difficult trip you've done in terms of like planning or executing? What what was the biggest challenge? <sighs> biggest challenge. Um Kazakhstan was um, just purely from an organizational point of view. Kazakhstan so far is the one that took the most effort because I needed a visa, number one. And I mean, you know, with a with a European passport, traveling is usually quite easy. You know, you just show up, you get your visa on arrival, that's it. Kazakhstan is one of these post-Soviet countries where you actually need a visa. Um, so, you know, I live in Germany. I have to drive up to Berlin no idea what kind of paperwork they specifically want. So I basically just like print off every conceivable thing, like, you know, proof of health insurance or you know whatever, just basically like throw 20 pages at her. And again, I'm trying to see what she's saying back to me in this like heavily Russian accented German, uh, fingers crossed, hoping I get my visa. So before I even get there, like it took a lot more work than the usual destination. Things like train tickets, you know, trying to work a Kazakh railway website where your two choices are Kazakh and Russian, and both are in Cyrillic. And I spend, I think, 30 minutes, you know, like basically pasting everything into Google Translate. I was like, sweet, I've got my destination, I've got my arrival point, I've got the date, I've got the class of seat I want, all I have to click is pay and I got and then all of a sudden I get this bizarre error message just over and over and over and it refused to let me proceed and whatever whatever the fuck I couldn't paste the text of the the error message into Google Translate so I had to take a screenshot off it and post it on Facebook saying hey listen is there anyone out there who happens to read Russian and can tell me what the fuck the problem is and long story short they wouldn't uh, you can only pay for a train ticket with a Kazakh credit card so just like obstacle with an obstacle, with an obstacle, with an obstacle. Um, once actually there, like once on the ground, no hassle, like everything's very, very punctual, everyone's very friendly, but just from uh, paperwork, logistics, language, you know, alphabet as well, because, you know, you're not just trying to decipher another language, you're trying to figure out, like, oh, hang on, what fucking sound does that one make again? So that one, oh, sorry, no, no, another no. polar bear message. Um, Trying to find places to train as well. So, I mean, I always do like to train when I'm on the road. But trying to find BGJ schools in Kazakhstan, that took some work because no one really uses Facebook there. It's all this, um, you know, in Russia and in uh, Russian-speaking countries, they use VK. So trying to find someone that I can actually have a conversation with in advance and say, hey, listen, I will be in town these nights. Do you mind if I show up? Um is there a mat fee? Is it ghee? Is it no ghee? Blah, blah, blah. Like just trying to work out uh, the etiquette. You know, there, there's basically a barrier, an extra barrier in everything that I, I had to do. But as a, on the ground, no complaints, everything worked out fine. Did you find a place to train jujitsu there? Or? I did, yeah. Like ultimately, I think just it was like 15 minutes away from my hotel around the corner. Um, everyone very, very friendly, limited levels of English, and I have significantly more limited Russian. But I mean, you know how it is like jiu-jitsu is jiu-jitsu. So, yeah. you know, once you, once you slap hands, everyone speaks the same language. That's easier. Is everything else around it? What do you, so, yes. so what did you do in Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan, I, um, I took a train from, there's two main cities in Kazakhstan. One of them is the new capital that they built in the 90s, um, and the other one is the old capital. So I got a train between the two, which was 22 hours just out across the open steppe, which is beautiful. Um, it was long because, I mean, growing up in Ireland, you basically, 
you know, you get anywhere within three hours. So the thought of a 22 hour train journey, it just kind of still blows my mind. Um, beautiful landscape though, you know, just like open step, no, no mountains, no nothing, just, just sky, just sky as far as the eye can see. Um, did some hiking when I was there down in Almaty because like Kazakhstan, I suppose in general is quite flat. Like it is the open steppe, like Mongolia or a lot of Central Asia. But once you get down into the South near to the border with Kyrgyzstan and China, you get into mountainous territory. So, uh, hiked up a mountain and, uh, I think t- talking about challenging, like just in terms of pure physical challenge, I think that is quite possibly the most tired I've ever been. And I do not know why. I don't know if it was residual jet lag. I don't know if I had eaten something weird. I don't know if it was altitude because it was up at like 3,600. 3, but I've never, ever felt just so absolutely physically fatigued in my life. I had to stop every five steps and just take a breath and then pretend, like kind of just try and trick my ego into like, no, no, I don't actually need a break. I just want to take a photograph or something. But it's just... It was the longest and most laborious mountain climb I've ever done Um, and trained when I was there and drank some fermented camel's milk because, you know, you got to try something weird when you're off somewhere like that. Of course. Let's do a quick, uh, like a Hyperloop trip to your next, the next destination I I see here on your list. Uh, Argentina trained in the southernmost jiu-jitsu club in the world. Let's hear about it. Oh, yeah, that one. Um, yeah, again, this is the self-proclaimed southernmost BJJ club in the world. But, I mean, I don't have any reason to doubt them unless someone throws down some mats in Antarctica. I'll, I'm willing to give them that medal. Uh, that was another hiking trip. So that was, I wanted to go way, way, way down south to Tierra del Fuego and hike the southernmost circuit in the world because I'm like, everything down there is the southernmost something or other. Um, so that was back in 2014, I think. Flew to Buenos Aires, then flew from Buenos Aires, like way down to the southernmost tip of Argentina to a city called Ushuaia. And then from there, got a boat across to this little island called Isla Navarino, which belongs to Chile. And uh, I remember it was actually in Greenland, I remember talking to Nelson about this, because, you know, Nelson is from Chile originally. And uh, I was like, oh, hey, um, you know Bernardo O'Higgins? And he was like, yeah, fucking everyone in Chile knows Bernardo O'Higgins. And this is like this little tiny Chilean village, like this island at the absolute end of the world. There's a plaza right in the middle of it called Plaza Bernardo Higgins and uh, just a little statue of him. And Bernardo Higgins, um, I, and I hope I'm getting this right, is basically the Chilean George Washington. Like he's the, the, the father of their independence movement. So every town, every village, like every kind of urban center in Chile has a street or a square or a statue named after him. But his father came from Ireland um, and specifically he came from my hometown. So I remember when I was growing up, you know, I was walking past this little statue in my hometown, which was to Bernardo and Ambrosio O'Higgins. And at the time I had no idea who they were and I had no idea where Chile was. Like Chile was just a word. You know, it was an abstraction. It was this place on the other side of the planet that I would probably never, ever visit. And then, you know, fast forward 15, 20 years, I'm wandering around this little village, again, the absolute end of the end of the end. And I walk across uh, Plaza Bernardo Higgins, which I just thought was interesting, you know, that I'm so, so far from home. And yet I see this, um, this little reminder just right there. 
Um, so nice. yeah, that was a, that was a hiking trip. Uh, there was a hiking circuit on that island, the Dientes de Navarino. I did that. Uh, another like really really physically tough hike. Um, that was one that I actually. You know, a few weeks or a few months beforehand, I was actually questioning how sensible it was to do because it's very, very remote. The trail is not that well marked. You have to navigate your own way through it. You have to have a map. You have to have a compass. You have to have a good sense of direction. You know, if something goes wrong out there, like if you just like turn the wrong way, your ankle just you know pops or your knee pops or whatever. You know, there's no rescue service out there, and even if there was, like there's no phone service. So you gotta you got to drag yourself back. You're responsible for yourself every single step of the way. And uh, yeah, that was intimidating beforehand. Like I was looking at that map probably every day for about two to three months beforehand, trying to burn that route into my head, just kind of trying to convince myself that like, yeah, you'd be fine. Don't worry. You know, if you get lost here, you can, that is uh, the island is called Isla Navarino. Um, and it's right down off the southernmost tip. It's off the tip of Argentina, even though it belongs to, to Chile. Um, and that took me three days, that hike. Um, and it was, as it, it was not relaxing at all, because every time you lose sight of, say, someone's footsteps, then the doubts kick in. Mm-hmm. And then you start asking yourself, shit, did I take the wrong turn? Did I go left when I should have gone right? am I going to be able to find my way back? So it was like, it was one of these things that I think I enjoyed in retrospect, but at the time it's just adrenaline and fatigue. Um, so that's how I ended up there. And then went training with the guys in Ushuaia afterwards. Who, how, as how, I said, how was the at, training there? Uh, very, very basic. So I think at that point they were all white belts and their head coach was uh, a blue belt. So, I mean, very young club. And I mean, it's like, it's so isolated. Mm -hmm. So it's understandable. Um, And the one thing I remember about it is that everyone was spazzy as fuck. Like, like super nice, like super nice, you know, no assholes. Everyone like shook my hand and, you know, they did the the cheek kiss thing, which again, I was like, ah, we don't usually do this. We don't usually do this. Did they do that before before, before you drowned or? (laughs) Yeah, no, they, uh, um, do, do they do that in Saint Bart as well? Because I mean, yeah, that is a French yeah, yeah. tradition well, too. Uh, isn't it? Just, just male, female usually. Ah, okay, yeah. So in, really in Argentina, they seem to do it man, man as well. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I was, uh, I'm always convinced oh, I'm going to fuck this up, or I'm, I just, I just go for like the manly shoulder pat and try and leave it at that. But so, like, everyone's super nice, but just ultra spazzy. And I think that was because, I mean, you know, in a you know, quote unquote, like a normal BJJ club where you have higher belts, the, that kind of white belt spazziness gets uh, rubbed off pretty quickly. You know, like, like if someone is spazzing out, you know, you just send, make them roll with the big purple belt a few times and then all of a sudden he calms down. Um, that kind of higher belt maturity kind of rubs off on the lower people. But in a, in a club where it's basically all white belts and one blue belt, that's probably just how they think training works. You know, it's like you slap hands and it's just Tasmanian devil for five mm-hmm. minutes, like just elbows and hair everywhere. So it was like ultra, you know, intense, but as if everyone really, really nice. I always, I always found that one thing that there was unexpectedly complicated about traveling was the whole kind of greeting handshake thing that, that changes everywhere in the world. And you always make a fool out of yourself. Like you said, with the cheek kiss and, 
<laughs> the strangest is, is the, the, the one thing the one thing I did I've done the most is you know if you go to a country where they kind of they I mean I could I could list the first 25 ways of of you know shaking hands or slapping hands or something uh, not in jiu-jitsu but just like in in general and the one thing that that I've done a few times is you know you, you try to you you try to shake someone's hand they put it out but the moment you kind of grab it they they were actually doing a slap bump so they pull yeah. it, so they pull it back so i end up just grabbing the like the tip of their fingers and shaking that that's like super awkward especially yeah, if it's someone yeah. you just met just grab their mm-hmm. grab their fingers and shake them yeah um, i think i've probably instigated quite a few of those on the road at some point as well <laughs> okay let's uh did you ever make it down to the antarctic uh no it's is that, like is that, from is that also your last continent you haven't been to i mean is this a race uh, no, I, between um, you and me i i haven't been to uh in terms of continents i haven't been to africa at all yet which oh, is really? something that i definitely have to check off the list and i haven't been to australia so we haven't um, we're, not, we're not racing to the antarctic yet no, I mean, listen, I would love to go there. And when I was down in Ushuaia, I didn't like look at, you know, I didn't look into it because I was there for the hike and I said, okay, and I'm just going to focus on this. But I did this out of interest, check into, you know, prices and stuff. It's also kind of and expensive. And right? it's yeah, ludicrously expensive. I mean, cheapest tickets was something like 10 grand. Yeah. And that's just the boat ticket from Ushuaia out to Antarctica. And you're in like a shitty little cabin with four other people. You still have to get there. You still have to, uh, to buy all your gear mm. and basically any other additional expenses. So I would love to go and check out Antarctica at some point. But just I think realistically, you know, as a civilian, like if you're a scientist, if you're in the military, you've probably got other options. Mm-hmm. But as a, as a civilian, your only way of getting there is basically on one of these cruises. Yeah, And I don't know, it just kind of clashes with the way that I like to travel. Like I do not want to be squished into a cabin with four or five other people for, you know, three days to get there. And then it's not like they just drop you off in Antarctica and say, okay, go explore wherever you want. We'll pick you back up in two or three days. Like it's so tightly controlled. Yeah. You're basically brought off the boat in in you know installments of 15. You say, hey, go take a selfie with that penguin, get back on the boat. You know, it's so tightly controlled. So I don't know. I think just for the cost of getting there. And then to me, I, I don't know, it just feels like it'd be too much of a theme park. But just imagine that selfie with a penguin in Antarctica on social media. <laughs> imagine it right now. How many yeah. likes and how then, many uh, likes do you think you're gonna get for that? Oh, I don't know, man. Well, let me try. Let me try and get one with a polar bear while I'm up here first, and then I'll have a baseline to compare it with. <laughs> okay, so from from hiking in Argentina, I'm just going to pick something random on your list here. Uh, walked across Liechtenstein after three separate attempts. Three attempts, yeah. Um, that was again. I did that after coming back from Argentina, and uh, that was weather both times that fucked me over, and I had to start again. And uh, I remember telling, oh, I was like one of the girls at work about this and she found it hilarious. She was like, listen, you know, you can get back from Tierra del Fuego in one piece, but like Liechtenstein of all places will kind of stimmy you. And I was like, yeah, isn't fair enough. Like Liechtenstein is tiny and it's like a nice little tax haven where everyone is friendly and happy, but mountains are mountains, you know? Um, and I'm not going to fuck with a mountain when the snow is um, too deep to get past. So 
Basically, I tried twice to hike across the country. There's one hiking path there. I think it's called the, well, it's been a few years now. I think it's the Panorama Vig. And it goes over some pretty high mountains. And my problem was I just tried it too early in the year. I tried it in May, I think it was. And the snow was just too deep. Um, and like, I don't, I'm like, I'm pretty fucking stubborn when it comes to things like this. Like sometimes it is a battle between stubbornness and common sense. And I was standing there like at one particular point on the mountainside, like where the trail passed and just kind of staring at this bank of snow, just weighing up the pros and cons of trying to clamber across it. And I looked over the edge and I thought, listen, one wrong step here and you're done. You know, it's not like, oh, hey, I slide a little bit and I feel a little bit foolish and I have to try again. It's like if you slide, you are done. You know, you fall off the, the edge of a cliff. So I said, no, look common sense wins this time, turn around, try again. And it took me three times altogether to um, pick the right time of year and eventually get across Liechtenstein. Beautiful country. I mean, in terms of landscape, it's basically Switzerland. So, I mean, anyone who likes Alpine territory, I can really recommend Liechtenstein. Just, uh, yeah, pick the right time of year because, you know, as I said, you, you do tend to get lulled into this sense of, false security because like everything is you know, Liechtenstein is probably the safest place in the world. I mean, there's basically no crime. Everyone is rich. Um, there's more registered companies than there are people. You know, it's like millionaires here. Oh, that's the prince's castle there. But listen, mountains are mountains and mountains don't give a shit where you are. So as it always, uh, I always try and keep that in mind. Norway, hike through the woods. Norway. Oh, which, oh, was that the one? The old, the old wooden church. I don't know. You just, you, I just read something about Norway here in your list. I was intrigued to hear about it. Um, nor if I remember right, that was. Uh, oh yeah, I wanted to hike off through the woods to this old church that had been burnt down by one of those black metal musicians back in the nineties. Um, that was the first. I think actually, yeah, the first ever solo trip that I did, and that was back in two thousand and. Oh, eight, I think it was. And uh, I was like, when I look back on it now, you know, I had no experience traveling solo at all. So, you know, I, I show up to Norway in, in the middle of wintertime and I basically have like just a jacket. That's it. You know, I have no idea how to dress for the cold and I have no idea how to, I have no idea how to travel. You know, I, just, I get on a, a seven hour train and I have nothing to read and I have no music. And I was like, oh, wait, hang on. This was, uh, I got to plan this a little bit better. So that was definitely um, the baby steps of the, the traveling, like the learning curve. But uh, yeah, that, that hike, you know, if you, if you can really call it, that was me just kind of clambering and stumbling and slipping my way out through the woods to find this old church. And uh, yeah, at some point I thought, I was like, oh, okay, I'm kind of getting the hang of this now. Like I'm, I'm learning how to balance on ice and uh, I'm working up the proper pace. And you know, this whole like walking through knee high snow thing isn't too bad. And then all of a sudden I just like look over my shoulder and I see this old woman who's about 85 on snowshoes, just like casually outpacing me, you know, not a care in the world. And she said something in Norwegian. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm an idiot. I know, I know that. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just, uh, out there, saw the church back in, but, uh, yeah, looking, looking back on it now, I said, that was, you know, it's, it's just where you want to kind of shake yourself. It's like, what the fuck were you thinking? It's like, learn how to plan. Where do you, uh, do you prefer to do all this alone or? Things like hiking, definitely. Um, hiking for me is very much, 
I mean, it's almost like moving meditation, if I can call it that. So I have gone hiking with other people uh, and I do like it. I mean, listen, you know, you put me in the middle of a landscape like that. There's no way I'm not going to like it. But when I'm on my own, it is, it's a different experience. And I mean, it is almost a different activity. You know, it's, uh, I can just sort of shut my brain off. I don't have to worry about, oh, what did that person say? Now I have to respond. Are they doing okay? Can they keep up with me? Are they thirsty? Do we need to stop? Um, you know, even if that other person doesn't talk, it is a presence there that's always going to be, um, that you're always going to be aware of. So hiking specifically, I do always prefer to do it alone. Um, and it's not always pleasant. I mean, take take the, the Tierra del Fuego hike, for instance. I did that on my own. And it was intimidating as fuck, like both beforehand and during it. You know, I had to plan everything. I had to make sure the map was up to date. I had to make sure all my equipment was good. I had to make sure I packed enough food and I could carry enough food. And then once I was out there, it was entirely up to me. I had to find the trail. I had to cook. Um, you know, all all the doubts were on me. And that burden would have been lessened if I had gone with someone, you know, I could have said, okay, you take care of this, you take care of that. When you're out there, it's, um, you know, let's, let's just say you, uh, you lose the trail, you know, you, you have someone else to kind of, to share that doubt and to share the, um, to share the burden of then deciding, okay, which way am I going to walk now? Am I going to walk this way and hope I can reach the trail again? Or am I going to walk this way? And I go way off into the middle of the Island and, like that's it i'm fucked so there would definitely be benefits to going hiking with people no doubt about that i mean it's just safer i mean at the end of the day it is just safer but when i think about how i felt when i got back from that hike and like all the the burden was gone and i was you know my shoulders were sore because i had been carrying this you know 20k pack for the past three days and my feet were cupped and like every bone just felt like it was, you know, about to, to fall apart. But just the the sheer level of enjoyment and satisfaction that I got out of that afterwards, like when I realized what I had done and when I could really sort of start sifting through all the little experiences that I had out there, I wouldn't have had that if I had someone else there with me or if I was with a group. So hiking for me specifically is uh, is definitely a solo activity. Um, traveling in general, uh, I suppose, yeah, I've definitely been inclined to do it more on my own. But uh, it depends. Depends on the people. Depends on the group. Um, hiking, no, yeah, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to try and just jealously guard that myself for as long as possible. Do you think, uh, and this is something I, I think about a lot, or not a lot, but I think about it, um, you know, with technology and and uh, everything, the world is seems really small. Suddenly, like you, you can get anywhere you know if you want, and mm. you just look it up on Google Flights and you grab a ticket and you go see somewhere. Like, um, I I find that that traveling is very easy, you know, and but but that also kind of takes away the adventure aspect of it. Like, it takes an effort to make it difficult. It's it's mm. uh. I obviously I kind of do the same with the camps. I don't want to do any camps that are easy to do. I don't want to do any destinations that are, you know, that anyone could do. It has to be, uh, it must be kind of, uh, it must be a destination that would take an effort to get to if you, if you did it on your own, like, and thereby, you know, take an effort for me to set up. So do, do you kind of feel the same that you have to, I mean, obviously you're doing, 
the most difficult trips you can possibly come up with kind of um do you feel like you have to that, that that this makes it better for you i mean you have to put in an effort into making travel difficult in order to kind of get something out of it i mean if compared to if you spend like a week in an all-inclusive resort in the canary yeah, islands yeah yeah i mean i've i'm definitely more attracted to those kind of off off the beaten track destinations there's no doubt about that um and and variety of destinations as well and i think that that is something you also mentioned that you try and do with the camps is uh not just that you don't want not just that you want them to be like i say a little bit difficult to get to but you want to incorporate diversity so you know one camp you're in this like uh, replica japanese village in the middle of nowhere in poland then you're in greenland then you're in a castle in the middle of umbria and so on so this kind of creating contrast in in travel um which is something that i really really like as well like i do like going difficult places and i do like going places that are specifically very far north so you know greenland iceland svalbard and so on but i do like you know just swerving off and trying someplace completely differently so a month or so ago i was uh, in mexico and belize with my girlfriend and you know we were sitting on the beach in nice mild or you know mild whatever you want to call it 25 26 degree weather sipping coconut rum um and on the surface you know that's the kind of thing where i'd be like man am i on the beach drinking coconut rum is like oh, that's not the kind of thing i usually do but uh, it's you know hugely enjoyable like it's it's an experience um and the fact that now i'm here in a hostel like at the end of the world where if i walk five minutes in the wrong direction i need to bring a rifle with me because there's polar bears out there like that's a phenomenal just contrast of you know landscapes and people and languages and uh yeah just experiences so i do definitely try and go off the beaten track i appreciate the challenge that it brings and i appreciate what it lets you see but you know, I, it, it doesn't all have to be that for me. Like I am perfectly happy to, you know, occasionally, you know, I would go off and do say an all inclusive thing for a weekend, let's say, hmm. you know, just, uh, just to see what it's like, just for that contrast, you know, but then um, as a whole, no, nah, it wouldn't be my thing. I do like, I do like to, you know, just like take a map of the world and throw a dart at, you know, some of the most far flung hmm. places I can find. I think really, I really think uh, from my experience too that contrast is is really key. You know, it's, it's mm. uh, if if you can do that, that like two or more uh, high contrast experiences that that really triggers something. I'm not sure what it is, but every time I've done it, it's like shit. This was great, and it's it's uh, it's also on my camp list. I want to do a contrast camp at some point. It's been on the list for a few years. I still haven't found the right the right way to do it, but it would be amazing to you know. Have everyone, mm. I don't know, be somewhere like Greenland, middle of the week, rent a plane and fly to the Caribbean <laughs> yeah. or something, something like that. Uh, cool. We'll see if I can pull yeah. that off. I have a few ideas for next year, actually, but uh, it's still, you know, even though if, it, as, if it's 90% doable, it's not doable. You know, it, everything has to, yeah. has to work out. And, uh, I'm not sure about renting a plane, but uh, we'll see. Maybe I'll pull it off one day. I would need a logo yeah, on that well, plane and it would need to get on social media, by the way. That would be very important. <laughs> well, there, there, there is already the BGJ Glowflower's boat, isn't there? So, I mean, add a plane to the list and... That's right. We have a boat. Doable. We have a boat, yeah. And mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I think we I think we can pull it off one day. We'll see. Um so 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 can you quickly tell us where you are right now and what you what are you what the fuck are you doing there, Ruin? Yeah, sure thing. Um okay, so as it where I am right now, I am in Longyearbyen, which is the capital of Svalbard, which is this Norwegian-owned territory way, way up by the North Pole. So again, capital, quote unquote, there's like 2,000 people here, um, most of which are Norwegian. The second highest nationality is actually Thai. And I'm told that's because back about 20, 30 years ago, this guy in Oslo, who was originally from Svalbard, married a Thai woman, and then they moved back up here. And then 20, 30 years, like her family and friends just gradually trickled over. And now there's like 170 Thai people here. Uh, according to the how is it yeah, yeah. can you get some good thai food there you must there must be some great thai food there's there's one thai restaurant which i haven't tried yet but it is definitely on the list oh you, you have uh, to, there's you there's have to two irish people here apparently like i i gotta look at the um, the census basically there's two irish people here so i need to find them as well um so yeah basically what i'm doing here is um i'm doing a training course on guiding so I came up here about a year and a half ago for the first time in June 2016, I think it was. So right in the middle of summer when it was midnight sun and it was high season. So very, very busy. And I just really clicked with the place. Um, I, 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 you know, if, if you were to ask me why, I can't really say why. I just really clicked with the place. I love the fact that it's so, so far flung. I love the fact that you are right in the middle of the wildest nature. So my hostel is right out on the outskirts of the, the town. So I'm just, uh, I'm looking out the, the window now and I'm looking out into the snow and darkness. So I go out the front door and I turn left and I'm basically, I go over one little ridge and that's it. There's no more lights. There's no more signs of civilization. It's just ice and mountains and sky. I'm going so to the I beach love, after this, Ryan. Yeah, this is this is the thing. Talking about contrast, it's uh, due to be minus fifteen tomorrow here, and I think you've got like what twenty six, twenty seven there at the moment. It's a little bit windy, so, so uh, it feels kind of cold. It's twenty yeah, six yeah, no, degrees. Cool. Yeah. Um, so no, very, very, very different experiences that we have ahead of us over the next twenty four hours. Absolutely. So what I'm doing is uh, a guiding course, um, and as it, it's uh, it's not that I'm thinking of you know really coming up here and guiding full-time or anything like that but it's just something that i would find interesting so you you do this course and you get to see and learn about aspects of the region and aspects of the town that you wouldn't if you just visit you know you get to meet the governor for instance you get to meet the local rescue service you get to do things like polar bear safety first aid uh, safe ways to travel on sea ice and stuff like that. So it's really just something that I looked at and I thought, hey, this this seems like a cool way to spend three or four days when I'm up there. So uh, that is kicking off tomorrow morning. I have no idea what it's going to be like. Like you have to pass a test first thing in the morning before they let you continue. So a test just on local history, local geography, local politics. So that's basically what I was doing. Like while I was waiting to to have this call, I was just here reading up on all of my my Svalbard material. Um, so I have no idea what it's going to be like. Like, as I said, they're going to give me a rifle at some point. I, I'm Irish. I've never even seen a rifle before. So this could go badly wrong or it could be awesome. I didn't, I don't know. But either way, um, it should be a fun three days. What, um, one thing I'm thinking about all these places you're going, I mean, 
I know people will be thinking about this. What do you, okay. Language barrier. Mm-hmm. You, you do these super weird places, right? There, how, how does this work? Well, I mean, the thing is like as, as kind of horrible and lazy as it sounds like English is such a useful lingua franca now, no matter where you go that, uh, I mean, look, let me put it this way. I always do try and learn some words of the local language. Sometimes that's just to be polite. So, you know, I'm traveling to Iceland, for example, you know, everyone in Iceland speaks English. So when I'm learning a few words of Icelandic, it is just to be polite, you know, yes, no, please, thank you, a few basic numbers. I'm going to Kazakhstan, for instance, it's not uh, a matter of politeness. It's like, I need to learn some Russian because like no one there speaks English. Some people do. And I mean, you can kind of, I basically just tires on my way through everything, you know, a few words of the local language, if necessary. You know, you'd be amazed. I mean, well, I mean, you traveled a lot as well. So you, you probably realize like just how, how useful just like gesturing and making an idiot of yourself comes in. So, I mean, way, way up here, I said, this is a Norwegian territory. So, you know, Norway being Norway, basically everyone speaks English. Um, there are so many other nationalities here that English is basically, you know, the, the lingua franca. Um, down in Tierra del Fuego, yeah, I had to learn a little bit of Spanish. Uh, Kazakhstan, I had to learn a little bit of Russian. I'm going to Siberia this coming May. Definitely going to have to learn a little bit of Russian there. So the thing is, I mean, I am, I'm, the, the way I put it is, and I think I even put this on my notes, is like, listen, I speak like 1.86 languages and that number changes every day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, English native speaker, my German, yeah, well, my German is basically a blunt instrument. You know, I can get by with it. I can have a conversation about pretty much anything in it, but it's not pretty. And then I have just like so many little scatterings of shitty French and shitty German and or shitty Russian or shitty, you know, whatever my next destination is. And then you just like mix that all together and you just like bang your chest and point and mind eating and you'll get there. Um, and you know, I actually recently just realized, I mean, almost the advantage of that in comparison to someone who speaks other languages fluently. Um, and how it happened was, uh, I said, I was going to Mexico and Belize for my girlfriend and she speaks uh, like five languages fluently, five and a half. And because she is so comfortable with communicating in so many places in the world with so many people on basically a native level. She is not comfortable with trying to communicate in a language that uh, she's not 100% in. So I would be perfectly happy going to Russia and just trying to spend two weeks grunting at people, just, you know, drawing a picture of a train ticket and holding it up and just kind of pointing to me and saying two or whatever, like that would be fine for me. Whereas she's so used to just like mastering every language that she needs. You put her in that situation and all of a sudden, mm, she doesn't like it. So I would say the one advantage to just being like a stubborn, grammatically mangled Anglophone like me is that uh, you just kind of accept the fact that you're going to be shit at whatever language you need and you just jump in head first and go for it. Does it, did this take some, I mean, for me, it, it took some practice because it's, it's intimidating to try and communicate with someone where you don't speak the language. 
And mm-hmm. I remember when I was younger and I was traveling on my own for the first few times, I was, it was so intimidating for me to go into a store or something or ask someone, buy a plane, buy a train ticket or something. It was like, I would have such a knot in my stomach and, you know, I, it could take hours for me to, to gather the courage. Did, mm-hmm. How's this been for you? Well, I mean, I will say I, I do encounter that as well because I have noticed, I think I draw the division between um, my German and the other little languages that I attempt because the other little languages that I attempt, you know, I know, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm very visibly a tourist as long as I can get my point across they'll appreciate it and I'll appreciate it. With my German, because I've been there now for six years, I do have that, um, you know, if if I'm having a conversation and I'm still at this point where I basically have to form the sentences in my head beforehand, you know, it might only take a half second, but I'm still kind of building that sentence in advance in anticipation of what they're going to ask. And if I build that sentence and I think it's like, oh man, that's fucking, it's like, ah, that's all jumbled and no, that's not the right word. I definitely do feel reluctant there because I think, oh, I was like, oh man, I've been here for six years. I should know this a little bit better by now. So that kind of mental block does definitely impose itself for my German, um, where if I have to go into a situation that I'm not familiar with and I have to use vocabulary that I've never used before. So I don't know, let's say I have to go in and get something fixed on my car. And it's a lot of automotive vocab that's, you know, I have, I've just looked it up in like 40 seconds beforehand and I'm going in and I'm like, just keeping my fingers crossed. Just don't ask me this. Don't ask me that. I'm kind of monologuing at them and hopefully I'll get all the information across and then questions won't be necessary. So yeah, that can definitely be intimidating. Um, if I'm in Russia and I'd say I want to get a train ticket or I want food, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go in and as it, I'm basically just going to grunt at them. And if I have to sound like Tarzan, then I'm going to sound like Tarzan. But if I get food at the end of it, then I'll be happy. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. That if you, if you kind of build it up in your head too much first, what you're trying to say, then you set some kind of expectation that you have to say correctly. And, uh, and that can be even more intimidating. Yeah. So do you, do you spend, I mean, are you learning French over there now? I am trying. Yeah. It's, it's, it takes a lot of time to learn a language, especially language like that from, from mm-hmm. bottom up, you know, so um, it's time is more my, my thing. It's still on as much as I would love to speak like really nice French here. It's still kind of on the nice to have list. It's not really a, it's not yeah. necessary for me in the day to day life. You know, I, I get along with basic stuff. So yeah. How much how much how much money do you spend on, on on traveling? It must be a huge chunk of your budget. Is it expensive to do this? Like compared to if people do like a regular kind of holiday to, I don't know, big city hotel restaurants or like resort kind of trip? Yeah, yeah. I mean definitely the kind of the farther off the beaten track you go, the more you're gonna have to pay for it. Um, I mean, the, the thing is like, I don't, uh, I, I don't spend a lot of money on other stuff. So it's not like I really have to budget for traveling and then I have to say, oh man, I, you know, can't go and like buy this, you know, this like fancy, you know, fancy clothes or whatever it is. I guess that's just not really on my radar. So kind of the only thing that I spend money on is traveling books, tattoos, training, you know, globetrotters camps, whatever. Um, so it's not like I have to sit down at the start of every month and, you know, like build an Excel sheet to figure out, Hey, can I afford this? Like traveling is just basically where my money goes. 
definitely the, the further afield you go, the pricier it's going to be. I mean, I, I don't really think there's any way to avoid that. Um, so yeah, getting up here, like getting up here, it's it's doable. Like you can certainly get up here cheaper and easier than you can get to Greenland, for instance. Like Greenland is an unusual case. But a flight up here to Longyearbyen is most definitely, even at its cheapest, going to cost you a lot more than a flight to, to Paris or to Copenhagen or to Rome if you want to spend a weekend there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just priorities, I guess. You know, if it's the kind of thing you want to do, then, yeah, is it, uh, you're going to have to shell out for it. Like there are ways, I suppose you could do it really, really cheap. Like I was reading a book uh, last week called An African in Greenland, which is written in the 70s by this guy from um, Togo, I think, called Tete Michel Kpopo Masi. And he basically worked his way over the course of 10 years from Togo uh, all the way up to Greenland, just jobs here and there, secretary for six months in this office, working in a warehouse for three months here, eventually got to Paris, eventually got to Copenhagen, and then eventually got the boat to Greenland. Um, Again, all just basically hitchhiking, staying on people's couches, working whatever jobs came up. And then he he landed in Greenland where he, uh, he spent two years and became a minor celebrity because he was the only like six foot tall black dude in the country in 1972. So, you know, listen, you can, you, you put your mind to it. You can probably get anywhere in the world um, if you want to. But, you know, I suppose more realistically, like if you want to fly, you want to stay, the further you go, yeah, more it's going to cost. Hmm. Um, so one thing that I kind of think about a lot in my life is, uh, you know, um, how do I put this smartphone culture, internet screen mm. screens in front of your face versus books and seeing the world around you. Uh, I think we've, it's obvious that, that kind of slowly, you know, turned our lives, uh, and all our attention onto screens. Uh, and it's really difficult. You know, I, I find it really, I want to just, you know, delete all my social media accounts. I want to, you know, burn my phone. I want like an old landline phone. I want to just read books in my hammock. It's kind of difficult with the, with the online kind of business and life I'm leading at the moment. But, um, I think this is, uh, is something that I really struggle with, you know, to, to, uh, to kind of see the world instead of seeing, uh, you know, my smartphone, like what would you must have put some thought into this. What, uh, what, how, do, how do you approach this? Yeah, I mean, listen, I've, I've definitely thought about, you know, deleting Facebook and just going analog as well. Um, and ultimately I haven't because I just find it so useful. So, um, I mean, let's say in terms of traveling, um, planning a, a trip, for instance. So, I mean, I, I don't know how many Facebook friends I have. I don't know, 200 and something, 300. I think you probably have a lot more through the camps. But uh, it's myself a difficult and distinction. my girlfriend... It's a difficult distinction between using it as a useful tool and then like as complete mm-hmm. waste of life, you know, because... It's a waste of time, yeah. Yeah, I try, I do try and balance it out. Like I do, I do really try and make use of the positive side of it, like the positive aspects of it that I don't know if you could get it anywhere else. 
So, I mean, recent example, um, I said myself and my girlfriend are thinking about going to Southeast Asia, maybe late next year or early next year. And I posted a status on Facebook saying, hey, listen, anyone got any recommendations? And I mean, based on the answers I got there, I mean, I have enough recommendations for three trips, basically. And j- just that that kind of like instant uh, instant feedback, that instant source of input, like not just from, from random people, but from people that you know and that you trust. And you're like, okay, I know her. She goes cool places. So if she recommends this temple, you know, it's probably worth seeing. So just that, that kind of source of input and... Uh, and being connected, you know, like the camp, the camps are a great example. You know, it's like I go to a camp and all of a sudden I had 50 people on Facebook and then that's 50 new stories out there, like 50 new sources of potentially inspiration. You know, I'm seeing right. them in my news feed and it's like, oh shit, you know, okay, that, that guy did this thing at the weekend. I didn't even know that existed. You know, mm. all of a sudden like that little light bulb goes off. So that's why I'm not too picky, for instance, about like adding people on Facebook. I know some people say, like, ah, it's like, no, 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 unless, uh, unless I've met them in real life or whatever. I mean, ultimately, it's not like I'm going around like adding everyone, but ultimately I'm not that picky because again, that is, that's an extra source of, uh, of information, source of news, source of, you know, insert thing here. So I yeah, I mean, listen, long, long story short, I mean, there have been, uh, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I, yeah, I was just saying, like, I try to turn off my phone now, like, at least once a day. Turn it off and put it in a in a drawer or something. But even that I find it mm. kind, of, kind of difficult, you know. It's like it's calling me a little bit just to check, yeah, you know. Yeah. Hey, did anyone, did anyone message me on Instagram or something? It's so unimportant in my life, you know. I, I, but but still. Uh, it's, oh, that's the thing. You've probably got 10,000 people, like, yeah. Uh, getting in touch about like geese or camps yeah, or whatever on a, a weekly basis. I mean, at, even as you said, at the camps, it's it's kind of a, a useful tool, like especially the bigger camps for information to people. On the other hand, you know, it if if a camp turns into a Facebook camp, then uh, it'll completely mm. ruin it. Uh, it can. Uh, that's why I, and this is official on the record, I often sabotage uh, internet routers, <laughs> Wi-Fi routers, if uh, people if people are staying in the same place for a camp um yeah. so if the internet is bad quote unquote in the caribbean or in a house in el salvador or uh-huh. in the forest that might be because someone pulled a, cool. pulled, so, so pulled a plug inter- from it or internet, something uh, you know what internet okay. at the winter camp was working fine until you less like disappear into the basement with a screwdriver and then something all of a sudden like that. things no, i mean isn't is, uh, maybe not but but um you know, the last camp here we had in here in the Caribbean to just three months after the hurricane, there was still no internet. And, uh, you know, the socializing just goes through the roof. People were playing cards and playing mm-hmm. games all night. You know, we bought board, we purchased some board games and it was great. And the same mm-hmm. at the, the the U.S. camp in, in the forest in Maine. It's like there is one place on the entire premise where you can get a bit of connection. And it's great, mm-hmm. you know, people actually talk. And I see the camps where there's a there's great Wi-Fi and, you know, everybody's just kind of sitting there with their heads down in their in their news feed. And uh, it's, this is something I really struggle with, you know, because I love technology, but I hate what it, you know, how it kind of disconnects us. But I think maybe because we're kind of in this, this age right now where it's new and, and humans are kind of, we're kind of getting, getting used to trying to, I don't know, live with it. I, I don't know if it's going to change. Is there going to be a movement of, of uh, off like an offline movement of, of people at some point mm-hmm. and like uh yeah i don't know 
but I'm thinking like what you're doing is 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 kind of the opposite of of like of like scrolling through your your social media. Like you actually just get out there and you know put yourself in in the world on some kind of mountain or something. And I, I I hope I won't forget to do that in my life, you know. It's but at least I'm I'm thinking about this and I'm I'm, I'm trying, you know. And I think one trick that that kind of struck me was a trick, you know. I, I was surprised that this was even something I had to think about. It's like how how do I get rid of my my phone? How do I, why do I always always think about it? Uh, I turned off the vibrator. I turned off all notifications, but I still kind of look at it to see if there was an email or something. Or uh, and I realized, uh, okay, all I have to do is just turn it off. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I turned it off, and it was like what. And I think I don't think I've ever turned off off my phone, and like since I got my first smartphone or something, it's been more than ten years of nonstop connect- connectivity, and that's when I, I I finally turned it off. I was like, well, that was easy, you know, just turned off my phone, yeah, <laughs> and I put it put it in the the drawer, uh, like uh, I don't know, overnight or something, and and when I wake up in the morning, I, I don't check emails. That's the first thing I do when I open my eyes. And, and I'm like, this is great. And then, like a week later, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I would, I would like to look at Reddit before I sleep. You know, I spent two hours of that in the hammock. But still, uh, mm-hmm. I find it difficult. But, but I, I think, I think what you're doing is, is kind of pulling the other direction. And I think that could be at least it's an inspiration for me to try and, and not fall into that hole. You know, as you see, just one generation before us. You know, I don't know, people in their twenties. I think they're even more into this. So. Um, mm-hmm. it's difficult anyway. Um, so, so you, you have a little project, yeah, yeah. you have a little project, um, fighting a uh, gods and fighting men tra- travel through history. Oh, I think yeah, that's yeah, yeah. travel through history <laughs> that, that really sums it up extremely well. Let's, let's hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Well, this is, um, yeah, it's kind of something I just, you know, you hear people talking about projects that they've had on their mind for you know months years whatever and then they finally managed to you know bring it to fruition this is kind of the opposite of that this is just an idea i had uh, one morning and then that evening i just threw something together so i know yeah how do i sum it up yeah travel to history i suppose is kind of kind of right there so like as i said earlier i get a lot of travel inspiration from from books so old history books, geography books, uh, travel writing, uh, nature writing, you know, anything that just happens to be about the world or an aspect of the world or a language or an event in history or a people or a piece of landscape. You know, I find I get, number one, a lot of just enjoyment out of reading about it. And number two, uh, a lot of ideas. You know, that's how I ended up in a forest in Poland. It's how... I might, fingers crossed, end up in the desert in Jordan and so on. So very often before I go on a trip, like I will try and find some old books, you know, ideally old books, because I find those like old travel books are like really, really cool when you have some guy going through like the Caucasus Mountains in the 19th century on horseback with a rifle and a sword. But any any kind of travel book or just like anything that will sort of tell me about this part of the world that I'm going to, you know, where did it come from? How did it get here? What were the challenges that the people went through? You know, what did they believe? What was their folklore, local religion, whatever. And I always love reading books like that when I'm actually in the location. So when I was in Georgia, reading books about, yeah, you know, guys, as I said, like traveling across the Caucasus Mountains in the 19th century. And um, 
last time I was up in Svalbard reading about like the mountaineers that uh, kind of hit the mountains here back in the early 20th century. Just something that kind of, it just makes you look at your surroundings with a new perspective when you know who's been here before you and what did they do and how did this place just come to be this this thing that I see right now. Um, but I often used to find it quite difficult to find books like that. You know, I would Google, it was like, ah, oh, old, old Georgian travel literature or whatever, and I might get one result and it's been out of print for 50 years or it's all in Russian. And, you know, you'd have to kind of like do some troll and troll and troll before you actually find something good. And at some point I started thinking, it's like, hey, you know what would be really cool is like if you had a central resource, like a library, basically, for every country in the world where you could say, right, I am going to Jordan in October. What are some books that I can read that will help me learn a little bit more about that country? It might be an old travel log, you know, three, four hundred years old. It might be, you know, a book of poetry, a millennium old. It might be something about the political history of the countries, anything like about a mountain in the country. Um, just any little thing that helps form the big picture. And that's that's what I decided to do. I was like, okay, that doesn't exist, so I'm going to build it. So I started this project, Gods and Fighting Men, um, to basically create that library. So ultimate goal would be someone is going traveling and they say, okay, I am going to Sri Lanka. What good books are out there on Sri Lanka? They go to the library, open the bookshelf, list is right there. And then you can buy it on Amazon straight away. Cause I want, I wanted to only recommend books that you can actually, you can actually buy, you know, buy either a hard copy or buy an audio book or, uh, you know, drag it onto your Kindle or whatever. Cause I found that was one of the huge obstacles that I used to hit is that I get a lot of good recommendations and then it would turn out, as I said, Oh yeah, there's one copy in this library in St. Petersburg. So have fun. Um, just instant kind of, this is the book that I want. Boom. Click. It's right there. So, uh, yeah, and as I said, listen, it's um, it's basically just something that I personally would always have liked to have existed. Um, and look, even at the end of the day, if no one uses it except me, then fuck, you know, I'm I'm going to get some good use out of it too. That's usually but, uh, the, uh, yeah, but that's if, usually if the anyone best, else, sorry, I was just about to say that's usually the best refer, uh, recipe for a a good project or a good like build something is that you, you you fix something for yourself mm. like an anxiety or something you you feel like you really need and then if someone else wants it you know just like me i i want to travel to mm -hmm. strange places and train jujitsu and i fix that for myself and someone else can join along so here's the question yeah. uh when will you write that book and call it gods and fighting men <laughs> because um, now I said it, you have to do it. Know. You're gonna have to write like, yeah. a travel history book. Okay, cool. Because Chal you know, your, 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 your blog is great. I love it. I love all the book recommendations. I don't. I, okay, when I'm 60, I'll get back to it and start reading all of them. But I need you to pick out all the best stories from these and write a book for me, please. Cool. As that is in the works. Because um, I mean, as I'm compiling all of these recommendations. As I'm making so many cool discoveries for myself and I'm just going to sort of kicking myself at the same time because like, fuck, I'm never going to get a chance to read all these. But yeah, that's that's the goal. I said, pick out all the good ones. And yeah, if I have to put them all together in a book, then so be it. Yeah, well, it makes complete sense.
that you have to do that. Cool. I call it right now. You are, it's it's my favorite book that's still not existing, but um, I'm absolutely sure you can write a killer book <laughs> from all the, the crazy things you've done. Um, cool, cool. What's, what's, let's wrap this up. What's next for you? Uh, next trip um, is... Just in the future, know, in the near future, long future. Do you well as a next next kind of big trip is um, uh, Siberia in May. So uh, as a yeah, that is um, as a Kazakhstan was by far the most logistically complex trip that I've done up until now, and I'm pretty sure Siberia is going to top that because all the horror stories I've heard about trying to get a Russian visa and again trying to fight with these old ancient Soviet era Cyrillic train websites and uh are you going to, to have... uh are you going to norilsk which is the you know about that town oh that's the most poisonous town in <laughs> the, the world most polluted, the different. darkest and uh the coldest town in the world yeah yeah i read something about it's so fucking is it's so funny yeah, it's, it's, a, not it's funny, an old nickel it's mine or something isn't it it's the most depressing place i've ever seen apparently uh People are genuinely dying from if they wait for the bus for too long because it's so cold. Like if the bus is delayed, the taxi business is booming because if the bus is late and you're at the bus stop, you will die. Yeah, well, the the place that I am going to again, it's uh, as far as I know, it's not poisonous. But when you Google it, uh, the top English result is forty people die from drinking homemade moonshine that some guy brewed in his bathtub. So place, I don't know. Yeah. I think as long if anyone offers me anything in a bottle with no label, I might just have to consider declining. But uh, yeah, that's in May, so I'm sure I will be annoying you and everyone else in my Facebook feed with photos and all the other random stuff I discover along the way. Then yeah, I have a mission for you. You got to get into one of those those secret cities in Russia. Have you heard about that? Oh yeah, the, the closed yeah yeah, yeah the closed off cities. To, it's like closed closed military cities. Yeah, you need permission. Um, yeah, I've, I already looked at one of those. Like, there's one up in the Arctic, uh, Murmansk, and I was like, man, Russian Arctic, you know, that that could be just miserable enough <laughs> to make an interesting trip. There's a, there's a great like for the listeners, by the way. There's a great documentary on Netflix. I don't remember what it's called, but just like go call Russian secret city or something. It's really interesting. Like, it's been closed off since the Cold War. That's where they built the nuclear bombs and is like insanely polluted and people are kind of free but they're not really free mm. uh it's it's very interesting um highly recommend that one i'm sure you can recommend a book on that stuff yeah well actually i'm just about to start my own russian reading now so uh as in terms of traveling across russia if anyone is interested uh there's a great book out there about uh, russian train culture by david green called midnight in siberia so definitely go and check that one out um i've got a load more lined up and basically as soon as i get back here i'm going to hit my visa and then i'm going to hit the bookshelf right so give me another two months and then i'll have some proper recommendations and i'm sure people can just check uh gods and fighting men for the, exactly, rec- yeah. for the recommendations yeah, once, you, once, you've been through them. Net, yeah. once you've been through them yeah. all right well um we've been going at it for an hour and a half. Uh, let's wrap this up. Oh. I, I got to go pick up some people in the airport who's coming in for the camp. So um, mm-hmm. I have no more time to talk to you. Um, <laughs> thanks for being on the on this show, whatever it is. Uh, it was interesting to spend some time talking about this. And um, I'm going to put a few links in the, in the podcast, the show notes about what we talked about and your, your website mm-hmm. and stuff. So 
any famous last words before you you wander off into the the dark Arctic? Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna do my best to get that polar bear selfie. Um, yes, let's see that. Keep 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 an eye out for that. You, you got like two weeks to to take that before I post this episode. So uh... yeah, cool, cool. Right. Okay, everyone. Have a nice day and uh, enjoy the wonderful weather of uh, Svalbard. I'll go on with the, with the camp here. We have 50 people coming today and tomorrow, so we're going to be busy. Yeah, cool, cool. So I said, yeah, have fun. And um, I know I think I will definitely see you in Heidelberg in person, uh, if not before then. Absolutely. I'll see you in the summer somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Take care, man. Talk have a nice day. Then. Bye. Bye. Okay, we are back in the basement and um, it's time for Christian's Life Coach Corner. I feel like I need like a jingle or something for this. Um, anyway, here are a few questions I picked up from the, from the Facebook group that I decided to answer in this episode. First one, where do you see BJJ Globetrotters in 10 years? It's an interesting question and I have no idea really. Um, I would say from the beginning, I've never had like a vision or a business plan. I never even thought this would turn into a business of any kind. Um, it's just, everything is just kind of happening. I think BGJ Globetrotters is, is, is like a, a vehicle for, uh, for my, my creativity of making things happen. Uh, or at least that's what it's become. Uh, I kind of, I started it, I know, uh, in, in one way or the other, and I, I kind of uh, feel like it's living its life on its own right now. It's like one a large organism of thousands of people that kind of lives on its own, and I just feed it new ideas and, and karma here and there, and, and it keeps growing. Um, I never sat down and thought, hey, I'm going to start a business that makes jiu-jitsu camps uh 10 times a year around the world um i never even you know considered that to be an opportunity it just kind of everything just kind of happened along the way um and i i, I kind of like it like that I don't, i'm not sure how next year is going to look i have no idea what i'm going to do I, i don't know where i'm going to live in the world uh um nothing is really planned and and that's that's kind of how i like it um and so so i'm i'm really just going with the flow and and i purposely don't want to plan anything too far ahead so in 10 years i have no idea um one of my uh, a question that's come up like a few times from my friends or people who are involved in this somehow like is it how how is this going to end you know am i am i going to do jujitsu camps roll and party with all the young people until i'm 65 or something um and honestly i have no idea how this is going to end Um, I think the only, the only, the only plus I talked with Katla, who is the assistant at many of the camps, we, we agreed that it can, this cannot just fade out. I can't just do 10 camps a year now. And then in a few years, I'll, I'll do eight and seven and, and it's going to go down to one big camp. It, that's not possible. It must end with a, with a bank. I'm, I think the only right way for this to end is if I die at a camp. That's, that's the only um that's the only way this can end in a proper way uh i don't plan on dying at a camp there's not going to be like a euthanasia camp um um but um that's that's i don't know 
I have no idea how this is going to end. But it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, who knows? Maybe um, the interest for what I do is going to disappear and uh, there's not a market for it anymore. Or maybe something traumatic happens and we can't keep doing it. Or maybe it just kind of fades out. Um, maybe I I sell the concept to the Gracies and they... Uh, they take over. <laughs> I don't know. I can't ever see myself selling uh, Globetrotters as a business, um, for sure. So, since Globetrotters is just like a vehicle for for my entrepreneurial creativity, then I think it'll it'll just kind of keep going, and whatever I come up with, uh, I'll, I'll try and make it happen, and we'll see. Um, definitely, since I got since I hired Vara full time, my my manager full time. Uh, I've managed to make a lot of uh, ideas I had happen um, because uh, back when I was doing everything myself, uh, I didn't really have time to be creative or work on new projects. But VAR is taking a lot of uh, a lot of work off my shoulders, so that's that's how like Globetrotters in Action has happened. This podcast, um, I'm doing way better gear designs for for the shop and for the camps, and I think I, I'm just able now to to create even better experiences for for people who go to the camps and um, this is something I do I spend every day all day on on, on thinking and planning on how to uh, how to make these these things better because again the camps are are just pretty much just my holiday that people crash um, so I only design them for my own for primarily for my own sake uh, if I didn't go to the camps I don't think I would be as passionate about making them good experiences as, as I am so so I, I, you you can say that that somehow now VAR took a lot of the administration works off my shoulders, so so I can spend even more time on just sitting and planning my own dream holidays, uh, which happens to be camps uh, in one in one way or the other. Um, so at least in the near future, I have I have some more ideas I wanna I wanna make happen. Uh, I think there's still room for for more good projects that can that can benefit uh, people through the Globetrotters network. And of course, if you have any good ideas for for what direction Globetrotters can go or projects we can do or stuff we can support, uh, always feel free to shoot me an email on mail at bggglobetrotters.com. Next question was, will there ever be longer camps than, than a week, like two weeks, 10 days or something? Uh, I haven't planned any of that. I would love to do it, but um, we'll see. I, I'm not... I, I think... I always try to think out of the box with the with the camps and everything we do, and it's definitely not um, implausible that there will be something that's completely different from from how you know the camps right now. I have some things on my on my idea whiteboard here in front of me that, and I know uh, most of the ideas will probably never happen, and and they're kind of overly ambitious. But um, I try to dream big and 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 do my best to to do something completely different because at some point. It's kind of sad, but when you do a lot of camps or a lot of a lot of fun things all the time, then you you really raise the bar for what's interesting and fun and and kind of what makes a good memory. Uh, and it's good and bad because uh, it really makes me push the experience for myself all the time. Like, what do I want to do with the camps? How how do I how do I make it the best possible experience for myself? Um, and once you've done it enough times, you really, or just, even just a few times, you really have to come up with something new to make it bigger, better, more fun, more interesting. Um, so I have some ideas, um, and the research 
uh, project for 2019 is going to be absolutely crazy. But um, I have to. I can't just repeat what we did this year. We, what we're going to do this year, even though it's already uh, incredibly ambitious. So, um, so that's it. Yeah, probably at some point. I can imagine there'll be a longer camp. I also have family obligations and stuff like and other stuff to do. So, uh, but we'll see. Maybe there'll be like a round the world camp or something. It might be a little bit expensive to set up, but uh, who knows? Um, maybe we'll do a, a camp that travels around the world or something. I have I have some ideas here in front of me. I'm not going to mention them because most of them are not going to happen. But we'll see. So that was the seventh episode of the BGJ Globetrotters Pirate Radio Podcast. Um, if you want to know anything else about the BJJ Globetrotters, just go to bjjglobetrotters.com where you can find pretty much everything. If you want to listen to any of the other episodes of this, this podcast, uh, you can go to bjjglobetrotters.com slash podcast or just look it up on iTunes. It's fairly easy to find. If you haven't yet joined our Facebook group called Members of BGJ Globetrotters. I think we're more than 13,000 people there at the moment, uh, constantly growing, and it's pretty much a Facebook group just for people help helping each other out with travel uh, recommendations and finding places to stay and train and uh, connect with uh, other jiu-jitsu practice- practitioners from, uh, from any corner of the world, really. So that's it. I'm going to wrap up this episode, and uh, I will be back with episode 8, and it's going to be about uh, working on a cruise ship in order to travel the world so that you can train jiu-jitsu everywhere. Uh, it's an interview I have, I think, uh, turned out really well. And then I'm excited to uh, to do that episode. So take care and uh, don't get any injuries until I see you next time. And have a wonderful day. <laughs>